This episode contains graphic descriptions that may be disturbing to some listeners. When Mr. Rayner asked me, he said, Mrs. Mobley, that's the undertaker. Do you want me to retouch the body? I said, no, Mr. Rayner, let the people see what I have seen. I want the world to see what is going on in Mississippi, in this great old United States of America. From ABC Audio, this is Reclaimed, the story of Mamie Till Mobley. I'm Leah Reitriger. Episode 2, Guilt. Sunday, August 28, 1955. That was the day Mamie Till Mobley received the call that her son was missing that a group of men had taken Emmett from her Uncle Moses' house in Money, Mississippi, in the middle of the night. The call came from Mamie Till Mobley's cousin, Willie May. Willie May could hardly gather the words to tell her what happened. She didn't have the answers that Mamie desperately needed. Like, who were these men? And why did they take my son? Willie May knew just one thing. Emmett was missing. Unable to answer any more of Mamie's questions, Willie May was so emotional and distraught that she eventually hung up the phone on Mamie, leaving her to worry and wonder what was happening to her son. Ollie Gordon, Mamie's cousin, remembers the pacing the anxiety and the dread that filled the house. The news came that he was missing, and of course that was hysteria. There was fear. I don't. There was anger. Uh, there was uh, anticipation, just waiting for any kind of news for the for the uh, phone. The anxiety level in that house was was horrific. Mamie Till Mobley kept calling their family in Mississippi looking for answers, for anything. With the help of the family members around her, she reached out to local officials. Ultimately, the news of Emmett's disappearance got to the mayor of Chicago, Richard Daly. Despite a complicated record on civil rights, Mayor Daly had been recently elected in large measure on the strength of the Black Democratic vote in Chicago. He and other officials called upon Mississippi authorities to look for Mamie's child. Mamie's family also contacted the Black press, including the Chicago Defender, which was Black-founded, owned, and operated. It was the way that Black versions of events and stories made their way into the community. Chicago was a true force, filled with political activism and movements that made headlines beyond the city's borders. And by contacting the Chicago Defender, Mamie knew that this local story would become a national one. A whole three days went by, not knowing where her son was. Then, Mamie received the call no mother wants to receive. And then when the call finally did come, you can imagine that it went on another level. I cried because I still hear the screams at home. 
I still hear the yells. A body had been found by a local fisherman in the Tallahatchie River. Moe's right. Emmett's great-uncle was called to confirm if the body belonged to Emmett. The boy was so badly beaten. An eye gouged out, a bullet in the head, and a cotton gin fan with barbed wire tied around the neck. Emmett was unrecognizable. But then, Moe's right saw something on the hand, a ring on the pinky finger. It was Emmett's father's ring, the one Emmett couldn't wait to show off to his cousins. The details of what happened to this boy could leave a mother paralyzed by grief. But Mamie, she had so little time to grieve, to even let what happened sink in. Because at that same time she was learning her son was brutally murdered, she was told that down in Mississippi, arrangements were already being made for a burial. The Tallahatchie County Sheriff, a man named H.C. Strider, had ordered Mose Wright and the family to bury Emmett's body immediately. Mamie had to react quickly. She couldn't let this happen. Once again, Mamie, her family, and their supporters called on the black press, Mayor Daley, and even the governor of Illinois, William Stratton, and asked them to intercede. She used those black connections to stop this hurried funeral and burial and get her son up to Chicago. That's Gloria Brown Marshall. She's a civil rights attorney and historian who wrote a play called Dreams of Emmett Till, which explores the impact that Emmett's murder still has on the world today. Mamie and her family's efforts worked. Simeon Wright, one of Emmett's cousins, wrote about this moment in his memoir. The family was just getting ready to lay Emmett in the grave when a sheriff from a neighboring county pulled up, got out of the car, walked over to the undertaker, and told them to stop the burial. That the body instead of going underground, must be sent back to Chicago. But for Mamie Till Mobley, there was a whole nother challenge. She had to find a mortician who would be willing to help get Emmett back. In Chicago at the time, morticians were pillars in the Black community. Their role was not only to help families through times of difficulty, but also to lend money to support their needs. So she had gone to A.A. Rayner, a close friend of the family, who agreed to help. He offered to front the cost of sending the body back, $3,300. To Mamie, that was a lot of money. She wasn't even making $4,000 a year at the time. A.A. Rayner had also worked out a deal with Mississippi. The agreement was this. Mississippi would send the body back, but only under one condition. The casket must remain closed. It must never be opened under no circumstances, not even to inspect the body. And that, that was strange. Here's Gloria again. There have been over 5,000 people lynched in this country. 
usually there's no shame about showing the bodies that are burned alive or hanging from trees. This time they wanted to cover it up. So they sealed the box tight with the seal of the state of Mississippi and it was sent back to Chicago on the same train Emmett took south just a few weeks earlier. But once the body got to Chicago, that seal wasn't strong enough to stop Mamie from opening it. There was simply nothing that could stop her from seeing her son. Ollie Gordon remembers Mamie's reaction. And uh, Emma's mother said, well, give me a crowbar, give me whatever. What can they do to me? They've taken my son. What can they do to me now? I have nothing else to lose. I'm going to open this casket. I need to know that that's my son and the remains. The casket Emmett's body was sent in was actually a box. It looked like it was made out of old, rotting plywood. Like if you laid your hand on it, you would leave with a handful of splinters. And it was huge, especially for such a young boy like Emmett. Mamie thought that the box would have taken up nearly three grave sites if they had buried it in Mississippi. A.A. Rayner agreed to let Mamie open the casket. Her father and Jean Mobley, her partner at the time, accompanied her. As she walked towards it, they held her tight in case she fainted. But when she reached Emmett's body, she asked them to let her go. She wasn't going to faint. She wouldn't let herself. She had a job to do. The box was opened, and a stench filled the room. She started at Emmett's feet. That's how she felt she could handle this. To start from his feet and work up the courage to see his face. She felt his feet. They were cold and hard but familiar. They were lean, nicely shaped. She traveled up to his knees and kept going. Mamie had heard a terrible rumor that Emmett had been castrated, but it wasn't true. She noticed that none of Emmett's body so far was scarred. There was no sign of violence until she got to his face. His tongue was resting on top of his chin. It was bloated. Huge, she wrote in her memoir. His right eye was out of place, hanging down on his cheek. She looked at it closely. It was light hazel brown. She went to go look at the other eye, but it was gone. Last... She looked at his teeth. Mamie had always loved Emmett's teeth. His beautiful smile. But now, only two teeth were left. This was her son. She knew it the way only a mother could. She knew the details of his ankles and his knees and the color of his eyes better than anyone could. Mamie wrote, I looked deeply at that entire body for something, anything that would help me find my son. Finally, I found him. 
and lost him. Here's Ollie Gordon again. She said, I don't have time to lay down and feel sorry. I can't. Emmett was mine, but now he belongs to the world, and I have to see that his, his dying was not in vain. Mamie Till Mobley told A.A. Rayner that she wanted an open casket funeral. She remembered A.A. Rayner looking at Emmett, then looking back at her, and asking if she wanted him to touch up Emmett to make him more presentable. No, she said. Let the world see what I've seen. Leading up to the funeral, during the toughest moments of her life, Mamie let the world in. She invited the press, and they swarmed Chicago for the public viewing of Emmett. Cameras flashed as Mamie leaned over her son's body, capturing his beat-up, bloated face. Those pictures from the public viewing would be shared throughout the Black press, including a spread in Jet Magazine, the Black-owned and run periodical based in Chicago. It was an image you simply couldn't unsee. A photo that changed the world, that forced America to acknowledge the hatred that was happening in the South. That close-up shot of what was done to Emmett's face. It was published next to a photo of Emmett taken only a few months prior. That photo from Christmas. He's standing, leaning on the Philco television set, dressed in black slacks and a clean white button-down. He's smiling. He looks like the sun Mamie dropped off at the train station. She wanted people to know, this is what my child looked like. This is the child I sent down to Mississippi just a week before he was murdered. This child, and this is what I have now that I'm left with, this brutalized piece of meat. Before the funeral, Mamie exchanged the wooden box for a proper casket. It was smooth and glossy, and the most important detail, glass placed over his body so everyone at the funeral could see what happened to Emmett. The funeral took place on a Saturday morning in Chicago. When Mamie arrived at the church, it was packed. Thousands of people filled the sanctuary, and thousands more waited outside. One report said that more than 25,000 people viewed Emmett's body that day. There was another memorable photo taken that day. Mamie, standing next to the casket, dressed in all black. She's hovering over her son, her eyes clenched together tightly. Someone is holding her left arm as if it's the only thing keeping her from collapsing onto the casket. Yet, she remains standing. Mamie Till Mobley let the world in to show what had been done to Emmett. But what she also let the world see was her grief. But Mamie needed to stay strong because there was still work to do. On the day Emmett was laid to rest in Illinois, 
a Mississippi grand jury indicted two white men for his murder, Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam. They said they didn't kill Emmett. Not only that, but there was talk that the body inside the casket might not even be Emmett's at all. But Mamie had seen him with her own eyes. She knew it was her son. Mamie Till Mobley had buried Emmett, but the truth wouldn't be buried with him. It was time for her to travel to Mississippi. This woman was afraid she could get killed in the courtroom. That's what this house was like. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you'd do with an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run, take a nap, read a book, or maybe show up for a friend? We often find ourselves wishing for more time, but the real question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The key to squeezing that special thing into your schedule is knowing what's truly important to you and making it a priority. That's where therapy comes in. It's not just about dealing with problems, it's about finding what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you've tried therapy, you know how beneficial it can be. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's a tool for learning positive coping skills, setting boundaries, and empowering yourself to be the best version of you. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part? You can switch therapists at any time at no additional charge. So whether it's finding that extra hour for yourself or embarking on a journey of self-discovery, Therapy can be a game changer. Take the first step with BetterHelp and make your mental health a priority. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Reclaimed to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Reclaimed. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need and the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The trial was set to start on September 19, 1955, about two weeks after Emmett's burial. It would take place in a town called Sumner, Mississippi, about 20 miles away from the Tallahatchie River, where Emmett's body was found. The town's slogan was, A good place to raise a boy. A good place to raise a white boy. Maybe. 
Mamie's mother, Alma, didn't want her to go. She didn't want to watch her child embark on the same journey Emmett made just a few weeks prior. Mamie understood that. She understood her mother's pain better than anyone. And she did feel some guilt for leaving. But Mamie had to be there in Mississippi. To stay safe, she traveled with her father and another family member, Rayfield Moody. Here's civil rights lawyer Gloria Brown Marshall again. Mamie has put her life in danger, but she also knew what she had to do. She had to tell the truth. She had to defend her only child. And so she did take her life into her hands when she traveled down to Mississippi. In Mississippi, it was rumored that state troopers would target Black people involved in civil rights organizing and give their license plate numbers to Ku Klux Klan members. Mamie said getting to Mississippi was almost like traveling the Underground Railroad in reverse, staying at safe houses along the way. Mississippi during that time was pure apartheid. Everything was segregated. Water fountains, movies, restaurants, motels, schools, you name it. It was all uh, racially separate and not equal, by the way. And uh, these were really fearful times for people. That's Jack Smith. I was seven years old. I remember this. And I remember uh, my mother being very, very scared. His father was one of the three lawyers who prosecuted Emmett's accused killers. And then I can remember my dad telling me, we'll probably have to move to Colorado after this trial. And of course, I asked him where in Mississippi is Colorado. Jack Smith says nearly every lawyer in town volunteered to defend the two men who murdered Emmett. There were even donation jars out around town that collected upwards of $10,000 for their defense fund. And this was the town Mamie Till Mobley was walking into to make sure her son's killers were brought to justice. Fewer than 600 people lived in Sumner at the time, but the trial drew almost double that to the area. And about a hundred of those people were from the press. In her memoir, Mamie wrote, it felt like there were reporters and photographers and camera crews everywhere you looked. News of the impending trial spread like wildfire across America, but the story was being told in very different ways. The Southern press wasn't so much focused on the brutality of Emmett's death. Instead, they focused on the fate of the two white men, Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam. They described their former jobs. Roy was a paratrooper. J.W. had been a lieutenant. He was even given a Purple Heart. The press talked about their children and their wives, especially Roy's wife. Carolyn Bryant. She wasn't on trial, but Carolyn Bryant was very much at the center of this case, along with Emmett. She was 21 years old, petite, and had short, curly, dark hair that never looked out of place. She had won beauty competitions when she was younger. She represents to many people in the Deep South the purity of white womanhood. 
She is the one who needs to be protected. She's on a pedestal. A month earlier, Carolyn Bryant was working at the grocery store she owned with her husband when Emmett came in to buy some candy. She claimed when she put out her hand to receive his money, he grabbed it hard. She claimed Emmett said, how about a date, baby? Then came around the counter and put his hand on her hip and said, what's the matter? You can't take it? I've been with a white woman before. She said another man came into the store and hauled Emmett out. She walked out of the store behind them to her car to get her gun. As she did that, she said she heard a wolf whistle. A drawn-out, two-note whistle meant to call attention to a woman's physical appearance. What Emmett supposedly did broke an unspoken rule of the South. There were different rules that Black men and boys had to abide by in Mississippi, especially when it came to how they acted around white women. Here's Gloria again. This was an honor killing in the eyes of Mississippi. Her honor has to be protected. That's what they're really accused of. They're there protecting her honor. Wheeler Parker, Emmett's cousin, was at the store that day with a few more of his cousins. His recollection is much different than Carolyn's. I go into the store. Got to bring out your Southern training. Yes, sir. No, ma'am. No, sir. Be careful because you know what could happen. It's a way of life. You learn this. You know this. I didn't have to rethink it. I didn't have to rehearse it. I know where I'm at. Mississippi in the store. And the store is ran by white people. So Emmett comes in. Bobo comes in the store. And I remember saying, boom. I said, man, I hope he got it right. I, I, I didn't even think about him uh, and the language, but it just hit me all at once. I don't know if he even know the language. I didn't know if Mother said she had taught him what to say and how to do and how to behave. Wheeler Parker says he purchased his things and headed outside, leaving Emmett in the store alone. Moments later, another one of Emmett's cousins joined him inside. Emmett must have been alone for only a minute. Not long after, Emmett and his cousins left. They were hanging around the car, chatting, when Carolyn Bryant walked outside. And she came out, and Emmett loved to make people laugh. He gives this wolf whistle. I mean, we all could have fainted. In Mississippi in 1955, and you give a wolf whistle, what is wrong with you? People were killed for reckless eyeball. He have no idea where he's at, no idea what he has done. And no one said, let's go, we just made a beeline for the car. Four days later, Roy Bryant, J.W. Milam, and others got in their car and drove to Moe's Wright's house. Wheeler Parker was in bed with his cousins. Uh, about 2.30 in the morning, I heard them talking. I, I woke up and I said, I heard them talking. And they're talking about what happened at the store. I said, oh my God, I'm getting ready. I said, I said, these people are getting ready to kill us. I said, we're getting ready to die. 
And I'm shaking, literally shaking like a leaf on a tree. And they entered my room and with the flashlight, sort of flashlight shines, and I can see the big bald-headed guy with the pistol in there. And I'm waiting to be shot, and I close my eyes. And uh, I wasn't shot. I opened my eyes, and they're passing by me because they were looking for Fat Boy, the Fat Boy from Chicago. And uh, it, it was just pure hell in the house that morning. It's just, it, it's hard. You can't put it in words the way I felt in that house that morning. Of course, they left with him. That's the last time we saw him alive. Leading up to the trial, H.C. Strider was saying he wasn't sure the body pulled from the river was, in fact, the body of Emmett Till. If you'd drawn a cartoon of what a Southern sheriff should look like, it would have been Clarence Strider. That's Betty Pearson. She's a civil rights activist who spent most of her life in Mississippi. She was there for the trial. He was overweight. He was kind of swaggering and bullying. Despite both Mose Wright and Mamie Till Mobley's inspection, he said he couldn't be sure whether the body belonged to a black or a white man. It was too badly decayed, he claimed, and may have been in the water too long to have been Emmett. Sheriff Strider even went a step further. If it was Emmett, he openly wondered whether it was possible that the murder of Emmett Till was planned and plotted by the NAACP, the civil rights group that was formed in the early 1900s to advance the rights of Black Americans. And that's why Mamie Till Mobley knew she had to testify. She knew these claims Sheriff Strider was making were absurd. She saw Emmett's body. She knew it was his. She saw his hazel eye, his lean ankles. She was certain the body was Emmett's, and it was her job to make everybody else certain. She had to testify because she had already invited the world into her pain. She had to let the world know and the murderers know that she was not going to stand by and let them get away with it. Much like Emmett's funeral, the courtroom was packed. Here's Jack Smith and Betty Pearson, who remember the day it began. You couldn't put a ham sandwich in this courtroom. I mean, they, you know, it filled every seat. People were standing up in the back. The weather was very, very hot. And of course, the courthouse was not air conditioned. It had ceiling fans that were turning very slowly. And it had, the windows were open, white men sitting in, most of the wonders. This first day of the trial was jury selection. In 1955, some Southern states, like Alabama and Mississippi, did not allow women on juries. So it was left to an all-white, all-male jury to decide the fate of the two white men accused of killing Emmett Till. And I remember when the, when the uh, jury came in, I said, that jury will never convict them. Just by looking at them, they look mean. They, they just didn't look like they would be open to anything. According to the U.S. Census, 
the population of Mississippi was nearly half black at the time. Yet very few black residents were registered to vote and you needed to be registered to be part of a jury. Those black residents who tried to register often faced intimidation. They could lose their jobs. They were threatened and beaten. Here's Gloria. The men on the jury were made up of white men who came from outside of the city proper. And they dressed for the occasion and they tried. And if you look at the pictures, they look like they're city people, but they're really not. Um, they wanted to have people that they thought would be fair, at least listen to the law. But it was also understood that an all white male jury had at its disposal, not just the law of the land that the way they saw it, the law of Mississippi, but also the social responsibility to return a verdict that would please the community and fall in line with the mores of Southern life. The second day of the trial was the first day of testimony and Mamie Till Mobley would take the stand. When Mamie T. Mobley shows up in the courtroom, the white photographers and other reporters go crazy trying to get pictures of her. She is dignified, she's wearing black, she carries herself upright. She's seen as something unusual because she's not carrying herself in a defeated manner. So when she walks in, she represents black dignity, she represents black confidence, and she also represents a slap in the face to all those who are white supremacists who believe that all black people should cower. Special prosecutor Robert Smith, Jack Smith's father, called her up to the stand. She felt lonely and vulnerable up there, all alone, facing the lawyers, the press, crowds, and the men who killed her son. How she did what she did, I'll never know. She was, she was just amazingly composed and determined for this not to be forgotten. Mamie Till Mobley did not look at the two men. They showed up every day at the defendant's table, right in the front, chewing on cigars. They looked relaxed, almost arrogant, like they were sure they had nothing to worry about. Instead, Mamie Till Mobley looked at the jurors, hoping that they would see past the color of her skin and feel the anguish of a mother's loss. Robert Smith got right into it and asked how she had seen Emmett's body. She walked through the inspection she did at the funeral home back in Chicago, how she examined Emmett's entire body, his legs, Torso, face, mouth, teeth, his beautiful teeth, his eye, his ears. When Robert Smith asked if she recognized the body, she knew that not only her answer, but the way she delivered it meant everything. Everything she was about to say would be evaluated, analyzed, picked apart. So she spoke with strength and with certainty. It definitely was my boy, said Mamie Till Mobley, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Next, 
J.J. Breland, the defense attorney, took the floor. In her memoir, Mamie Till Mobley wrote that she felt like she was being tied up to a target and J.J. Breland was throwing darts right at her. One of those darts was a question about whether she had an insurance policy on Emmett, suggesting she might have faked her own son's death for insurance money. Next, he questioned her about whether she read the Chicago Defender. To the jury, 12 white men from Mississippi, the Defender, and anyone who read it would likely be seen as a threat to their belief system, their social status, their very way of life. J.J. Breland was trying to paint Mamie Till Mobley as a radical, even dangerous force. She told J.J. Breland she didn't subscribe to the Chicago Defender, but she did buy it and read it regularly. And lastly, he asked her if she had told Emmett about the South and how to act around white people. She answered, still calmly, that yes, she had prepared him for his trip to Mississippi. J.J. Breland insisted on knowing what exactly she said to Emmett. To be very careful about how he spoke, she said. To say, yes, sir, no, ma'am. And not to hesitate to humble himself, even if it meant getting down on his knees. Here's a clip from an interview Mamie Till Mobley did with ABC News in 2002, where she describes what she told Emmett before heading to Mississippi. I painted as dark a picture as I knew how to paint. I told him, if you meet a white person on the sidewalk, you step off the sidewalk. And if it's a white woman, you put your head down and you don't even look at her. Uh, Admittedly, he didn't think it was that bad. But I tried to make as dark a picture as I could so that if anything did come up, he would act in a manner that was becoming to a black boy in Mississippi. As dark as she made it, she didn't know it would be as dark as it turned out. And along with grief, the feeling of guilt plagued her. What if she hadn't warned him enough? The trial continued for another three days with courageous and historic testimony from Mose Wright and a surprise witness named Willie Reed, an 18-year-old black sharecropper. Willie Reed testified that on the night Emmett disappeared, he heard screaming inside a barn and saw J.W. Milam outside of it. On the last day of the trial, the defense presented a series of character witnesses who testified that the two men on trial were model citizens. Then, the closing arguments were presented. Mamie Till Mobley didn't stay to hear the verdict. She said in her memoir, if the jury came back with an acquittal, then white folks were going to know for sure that they could get away with murder. It was going to be open season on black folks, and we were going to be prime targets. 
It took just one hour and seven minutes for that group of 12 white men to deliberate, to decide the worth of a black boy's life in America. And that included a soda pop break, perhaps a tactic to prolong their supposed consideration of the facts, to make the deliberation look better. Their verdict? Not guilty. In the next episode of Reclaimed, the story of Mamie Till Mobley, how the verdict sparked protests across the globe, and how Mamie's legacy lives on. What Mamie T. Mobley represented was the power of Black womanhood, the power of Black mothers, and what Black women had been doing for centuries up to that point. Reclaimed, the story of Mamie Till Mobley, is a production of ABC Audio and a companion podcast to the ABC News docuseries, Let the World See, which is streaming on Hulu. Written and produced by Lakia Brown, Susie Liu, Carrie Ann Thomas, and Madeline Wood, with help from Marwa Mowaki and Iru Ekpunobi. Music and mixing by Evan Viola. Jean-Marie Condon of Cobble Hill Films and Fatima Curry are story consultants. They were also the directors of Let the World See. Our executive producer is Liz Alessi. Special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ariel Chester, and Stacia Deshishku. Some sound effects were used to recreate historical scenes. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast and let us know what you think with a rating and a review. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.